Last week, we looked at Matthew chapter 4, and we're continuing that this morning. We looked at verses 2 through 4 at the temptation of Jesus, and we talked about the temptation of self-gratification, the desire that we have to go outside of God's will, outside of God's provision for us, and get what we want. And that applies in many different areas of our lives, in many different ways, but we all know we are all susceptible to wanting to do that rather than trust the goodness of our Heavenly Father who has promised to provide all of our needs for us. We fool ourselves into thinking that something that we want that we don't have maybe is a need and then we convince ourselves that God isn't meeting our needs and if God's not going to meet our needs then we have to meet them ourselves and we go outside of his plan and that's when we sin and we mess up um, and, and that is the temptation, the first temptation that Satan threw at Jesus and Jesus would not have it. He faithfully chose to trust his father to provide everything that he needed um, especially uh, the food that he needed to sustain himself. So now today we're going to move on to verse 5, 6, and 7, and we're going to look at that second temptation that Satan uh, brings to Jesus. So if you'll look with me in Matthew 4, beginning in verse 5. It says, Then the devil took him to the holy city, had him stand on the pinnacle of the temple, and said to him, If you are the Son of God... Throw yourself down, for it is written, He will give His angels orders concerning you, and they will support you with their hands, so that you will not strike your foot against a stone. Jesus told him, It is also written, Do not test the Lord your God. Okay, so we said at the beginning of this series that one of the characteristics of Satan in his temptation tactics is that he is relentless. And we see that here. Uh, you almost think that after he couldn't trick Jesus the first time, he would have given up. But Satan is not like that. He is relentless. And so he comes after Jesus a second time here, we see, with a new temptation. He had failed to convince Jesus to use his own power for his own self-interest. And he had failed to tempt Jesus to disregard and not believe what God said. Okay, because you remember last week we talked about that's one of the things that that temptation of self-gratification will do. It will convince you not to listen to what God's word says. So next, rather than he can't get Jesus to, to disregard God's word, so now he's going to tempt Jesus to test God at his word. You see the difference? Rather than completely ignore it and disregard it, now Satan uses a different approach and says, well, if you're going to acknowledge the word of God, you're going to live and follow the word of God and you're going to use it, then let's test it. Let's test it to see if it's true. And so he takes him up, verse 5 says, on the pinnacle of the temple. Then most scholars um, we can't know exactly where this place would have been on the temple, but most scholars say it would have been a height or a peak of the temple that would have been about a 450-foot drop. If you need some perspective for that, that's one and a half times the height 
of the Statue of Liberty. So that's significant. None of us would even think about jumping off of anything 450 feet high. That, that pretty much guarantees our death. But again, I want you to understand the temptation that he's bringing to Jesus and the temptations that he brings to us. The presentation is not what the temptation is about. Satan, the, the end goal was not to get Jesus to jump off of something. Because, and, and this temptation is a little harder for us to grasp sometimes because none of us can identify with the temptation of jumping off of anything that's 450 feet high. Have you ever been tempted to do that? <laughs> uh, no, I hope not. Uh, I have never been tempted to jump. I am afraid of things that high. I can't, oh my gosh, I will never be tempted to jump off of, I, you know those videos that you see on, on YouTube and Facebook of, of people like doing bungee jumps, like tied to the, and, and then jumping off into a, like those nauseate me just to watch them. Don't they you? Is anybody else in here like that? Like I can't watch one of those videos without literally feeling nauseous because that, the, the idea of that just scares me so much. But the real temptation that Satan is bringing to Jesus, we find in verse 6 when he gives this instruction to Jesus. So look at verse 6. And said to him, talking about Satan, if you are the son of God, there he is again, again calling into question the sonship of Jesus, which is what he's doing constantly through this whole thing. If you are the son of God, throw yourself down, for it is written... He will give his angels orders concerning you and they will support you with their hands so that you will not strike your foot against a stone. So Satan uses, almost tries to use Jesus' defense against him, right? Because now Satan is in the scripture quoting business, right? He sees that Jesus used scripture against him so Satan now is going to try to twist that and use it as a tool for temptation as Jesus is using scripture and God's word as a defense against temptation. So what scripture is it that Satan quotes from? Well, we'll find that in Psalm 91. And if you, if you read the entirety of Psalm 91, it, it, I tell you what, if you've got a real Bible with you, just flip over to Psalm 91 for a second. And you know at the beginning of the Psalms, it, it, some of your Bibles may have a header um, at the beginning of the Psalm that kind of gives you a theme of what the Psalm's about. Can anybody see what Psalm 91 is about? Rescue, protection, refuge, yep. Your Bible may say protection, it may say refuge. Psalm 91 is a proclamation and a celebration of the protection of God. So Satan is smart here. He uses a psalm and quotes from a psalm that is proclaiming the fact that God will protect those who follow after him. But you have to read the entirety of the psalm to really get a good perspective. But I want to direct you to Psalm 91 verses 1 and 2. There's this promise of protection, but we have to be careful. Who is this promise of protection for? Is it just for everybody? No. Look at verses 1 and 2. It says, the one who lives under the protection of the Most High, what? 
dwells in the shadow of the Almighty. Verse 2, I will say concerning the Lord, who is my refuge and my fortress, my God in whom I trust. So the psalmist here, and most scholars believe that this was a psalm of Moses, that Moses wrote this. It ascribes God's sovereign protection to those who what? Dwell in his shadow and trust in him. Those who have an intimate, close relationship with the Father. That there's an association there that God, there's a promise in Scripture that, that God will protect us. He will keep us safe from what comes against us. And so Satan might be thinking, and Satan may even in a way be saying to Jesus, Jesus, who is more intimate with God than you? Who has a closer relationship with God than you do? You're his son. So who better to prove if this is true or not than you? So why don't you, why don't you test it? Because God has said this. You've obviously proven in this, the first time I tempted you that you're going to go to what God says. Well, let's look at what God says. God says this. Who's closer in relationship to God than you? Let's test it and see if it's true. Give God a chance to prove to you that what he says about you and the promise that he makes to you is true. Give God a chance to prove it. So the difference is in the first temptation, there was a need that already existed for Jesus, right? And it was what? Food. He, he had a physical need for food. But in the second temptation, a need would be created. God was already protecting Jesus, but what Satan was tempting Jesus to do was to create a need for God to protect him. And so Jesus replied very, very strongly and firmly, just like he did in the first temptation. Look at verse 7. How does Jesus respond? Again, with Scripture, Jesus told him, It is also written, Do not test the Lord your God. Again, there's, there's almost like this bit of foolishness in Satan. Like Jesus wrote the book. Okay? Like, why do you think you can trip him up uh, with his own word? But because of Jesus' intimacy and trust in the Father, which is what Psalm 91 begins to talk about, because of that, Jesus didn't fall for this twisted version of faith. And that's what this is. It's a twisted version of faith. Satan wasn't asking Jesus to believe God. He was asking Jesus to test God. So Jesus, again, uses the scripture. He refutes it. But what does Jesus come back with? So Satan brings Psalm 91 out of proper context to Jesus to try to tempt him to test the, the word of the Father. And so when Jesus comes back and says it is also written, he's quoting from the book of Deuteronomy, chapter 6. So if you go back to chapter 6 in Deuteronomy... It's found in verse 16. Deuteronomy verse, chapter 6, verse 16 says, Do not test the Lord your God as you tested him in Massa. 
So in Deuteronomy 6, this is Moses talking to the Israelites... And he's saying, do not test the Lord as you tested them in Massa. So that begs the question, well, how did they test God in Massa? And to find out that, we have to go back to Exodus 17. So I hope you're keeping up with me. I know we're jumping all over the place. But, but we've got to know the context of this exchange between Jesus and Satan. Exodus chapter 17. And I want to read that to you. Verses 1 through 3. So Moses in Deuteronomy 6... If you're following me, I'm trying not to confuse you. He is telling the people, don't test the Lord the way you did in Massa. So now we're going we're gonna to go back in time. We're going to go to Exodus 17. How did they test him in Massa? Look, here it is. Exodus 17, I'm going to read to you verses 1 through 3. The entire Israelite community left the wilderness of sin, and that, and that word sin there is referring to a, a geographic location, not sin like we think about disobeying God. It's talking about a geographic place. Left the wilderness of sin, moving um, from one place to the next according to the Lord's command. They camped at Rephidim, uh, but there was no water for the people to drink. So the people, what, complained to Moses, give us water to drink. Moses replied, why are you complaining to me? Moses replied to them. Why are you testing the Lord? But the people thirsted there for water and grumbled against Moses. They said, why did you ever bring us up from Egypt to kill us and our children and our livestock with thirst? Now, and if you skip a little ways down in the chapter and look at verse 7, he, talking about Moses, named the place Massa, which the word Massa means testing, and Meribah, which means quarreling, he named that place, those names, because the Israelites complained and because they tested the Lord, saying, is the Lord among us or not? Have you ever, just honestly, has that ever run through your head? Has that been a temptation that you, even as a believer, a follower of Jesus, have ever asked yourself, is God even with me or not? This is the temptation that Satan is bringing to Jesus. And the question that the Israelites were asking of Moses in the wilderness, thirsty, what did they say? Why did you bring us out here to die? Jesus in his humanness, Satan coming against the humanity of Jesus, tempting Jesus to reply to the Father and say, why have you brought me out here in this wilderness? Is it for me to die? Temptation's answer is make God prove he's still with you. Make God prove it. He says he's with you. He says he'll protect you. You don't feel like he's with you. You may not feel protected. So why don't you do something to force God's hand to make sure what he's telling you is really true. And Jesus' answer to that was an emphatic no. 
So why is that sinful? Why would that have been sinful for Jesus? Why is that sinful for us? To test God, to take the word of God and then create a situation for ourselves where we want to test and see if God is real. That reminds me of when I was a kid, and I've said this before, when, when you're a kid and you're laying in your bed and maybe you're, I don't know what age you would have been. I, I remember being like five, six, seven years old and laying in my bed at night and saying, God, if you're real, then make the lights turn on. <laughs> and don't tell me you didn't do stuff like that because you totally did. Did the lights ever come on by themselves? No. Did you ever do, did you ever do the million-dollar test? Say, God, if you're real, let there be a million dollars under my bed in the morning when I wake up. Okay, somebody else had to have done that one besides me. Never happened, did it? Now, in our immaturity as kids, we do that, but that, that is a testing of God. But we, we sometimes can carry that into our adulthood and carry that into our relationship with God. When we feel, again, like God maybe is not, we don't understand why we are where we are. We don't understand the circumstances that we're going through. Rather than trust and believe that what God has said to us is true and always will be true, we begin to wonder if it's true. And then we put ourselves in a situation or we create a scenario where we're almost trying to force the hand of God to prove himself to us. Here's the first point I want you to remember. Testing God is evidence of doubt, not faith. Make it, make it very clear. Some of us maybe in our immaturity might do these kind of things or say these kind of things to God and think, oh, that's faith. No, it's the opposite of faith. It is, it is complete doubt. We don't test who or what we're already sure of because think about it. Testing God is evidence of doubt, not faith. Why do you test anything? You test something because you're unsure of the reality of its truthfulness. Like when you're in school, the teacher gives you a test because she's not sure or he's not sure if you know the material you're supposed to know. So the test is to find out if you really do know what you're supposed to know. It's, it's to find out something. Uh, and some might think um, that it would have been a great act of faith for Jesus to jump. And that's, the, that's sort of the, the tactic Satan is using. Like, oh, jump off the temple, Jesus. Trust God. Trust that he'll catch you. Create this situation, and he tries to disguise it as, as this faithful thing, and it's completely not. To test God is to doubt God. Trust never feels the need to force the hand of God. When we trust God, we believe that what he says is true and believe that his heart for us is exactly what he said. There's, when, we are, when we are secure in that, there's never a need to try to test it or force God's hand. Let me put it to you this way. If you trust your spouse... If you really trust your spouse, you will never feel the need to test their faithfulness to you. 
right? There's some of you who think, well, I've, I've never thought to do that. You know what? That's an indication that you really trust them. But the moment you feel the need to test someone or something, then the trust is, is, is already gone away. If you feel the need to test it. If you test something, that means that you don't really trust it to be true. Whether it's people, whether it's things, whether it's God. And you say, well, when is it that we test God? We test God when we put conditions on our obedience to him. That is a form of testing God. Have you ever done that before? How about this statement? God, if you'll do this, then I'll do whatever. God, I really need, to, I really need you to come through here. I really need you to prove that you're going to be faithful to me in this area of my life. So if you will do this, if you will do a sign, if you will do something um, spectacular that's, that's obvious that I can't deny, then I will respond to you in faith. That's exactly what Satan is tempting Jesus to do here. And it's sin. That indicates doubt. We would never ask God, we would never put conditions on our faithfulness to him if we believed him. So when we put conditions on it, that, that shows that we doubt him, not that we believe in him. Or maybe we say things like this, God, because you didn't do this, I can't believe in you. How many people have I talked to, how many people have you talked to in your life who have abandoned faith in God because he didn't come through with something that they wanted him to? I really needed God to do this in my life. I really needed God to save this person that I loved. I really needed God to come through to heal this person. I, I was in financial difficulty and I needed God to help me and he didn't. I had questions that, that he didn't answer. And so because God didn't come through, I won't believe in him. That's, that's testing God. And it shows doubt. Testing is not an element of faith. It's, a, it's an element and an indicator of doubt. And Jesus talked about it. Uh, look in Mark chapter 8. Here's an example of it in the Gospels. Mark 8 verse 11 the Pharisees came and began to argue with him, demanding of him what? A sign from heaven to test him. Look at Jesus' response in verse 12, sighing deeply in his spirit. He said, why does this generation demand a sign? Truly I tell you, no sign will be given to this generation. You want to know what Jesus' response is to us when we ask him for a sign like that? It's in verse 12. <laughs> Why do you not believe me? Why do you not trust me? And you know this encounter in verse 11 and 12 in Mark 8 
If you have your Bible open to that, go up a few verses. You know what happens right before this? Jesus feeds a multitude of people. This is, this is immediately after he feeds a group of over 4,000 people with seven loaves of bread and some fish, which is a different occasion than where he fed the 5,000 with the five loaves and the two fish. This is another feeding where he does the same thing again with a different group of people. And so immediately after he has already done this miraculous thing, that's when the Pharisees come and say, hey, Jesus, we need a sign from you. We need you to prove that you really are who you say you are. And Jesus says, the sign that you're looking for, you will never get. Do you know why? Because I am the sign. You're looking for something else. And it's me. Like the thing that you're looking for, that sign, that miracle, that, that burning bush moment that you're looking for, it's me. And you're looking all around me for what it is that you're, you're trying to find, but it's me. I am the sign. And if you don't believe me, there's nothing I can do to make you believe. There's nothing more I can do than come and be who I am being before you. The reason they continue to demand tests and signs and miracles from Jesus is why. They doubted him. They didn't believe him. His word was not good enough. So there was zero trust in his word, and so they required miracles to test Jesus' word. Here's the second point I want you to remember. God can never be manipulated. We we can't manipulate God. We can manipulate people, can't we? And some of us do it. We don't want to admit it, but we do it. Sometimes we're guilty of manipulating our spouse. Sometimes we're guilty of manipulating our kids. Sometimes we manipulate people that we work with, people in our family. Manipulating people is one thing, but when we fool ourselves into thinking, I can manipulate God and get him to do something that I want him to do for my own benefit to prove himself to me, then we make God like us. And God is not like us. God can never be manipulated. I, I, I get frustrated when I hear people, even within the church, who, who make statements like, if you want your miracle from God, then do this. And you've heard it. You maybe even had somebody tell you that before. Well, the, God's miracle for you is just waiting. And so if you want to unlock... You ever heard that word before? You want to unlock God's big miracle for you, you do this and this and this and this. What does that sound like? That sounds like manipulation to me. I will do this to try to get from God what I want. You can't think that because you've done something, that means God owes you something in return. Like we have to understand who God is. God doesn't work that way. Like, it doesn't matter what faithfulness, like whatever we do, whatever formula we try to fit God into, 
Folks, God owes you and I nothing. He is never in debt to us. There is never a time when he owes it to us to to do something that we ask of him. He, He doesn't. Because manipulation is about our desire to control, isn't it? When we get, when, why do we manipulate people? Because we want to control what they do or don't do for our liking, for what we want. God cannot be controlled. We cannot control God. God is in total control. So we can never manipulate him and we will never succeed at manipulating him. And Jesus makes that true. That's what Satan is trying to get Jesus to do to the Father in this moment. And Jesus says, no. A God you can manipulate is not God at all. Okay, if you have this concept of God that I can do something or say something to make him do what I want him to do, then you're worshiping some false god. Because that is not the god of the Bible. But let me tell you who is, and this is the last point. Though God can never be manipulated, God can always be trusted. Right? Why do we think we have to test the faithfulness of God when he has already shown it to us as clear as day? We become like the Pharisees. They see the, revela- the, the, the incarnation of God in Jesus himself. Jesus proclaims who he is and they stand back and say, I, I need more proof, Jesus. I need more signs. If we really trust God and we really are, are living in the shadow of the Most High, as Psalm 91 says... If we are really in an intimate relationship with him, we will trust to the point where we never feel like we have to test the reality of who he says he is in our lives. He can't always be trusted. Uh, Numbers 23.19. This is one um, to remember. uh, Numbers 23.19 says, God is not a man that he might lie or a son of man that he might change his mind. Does he speak and not act or promise and not fulfill? What's the answer to that last question? What's what's been the answer to that question in your life? Does God speak and not act? No is the right answer. (laughs) Does God make promises that he doesn't fulfill? No. Does he always fulfill them the way we want him to? No. Does he always fulfill them in the time that we want him to? And you know why we don't test him in that? Because we trust his timing and his sovereignty and his will in our life. And that is what Jesus was doing in the wilderness. That's why when Satan brought this temptation, test God and see if he's still with you. Test him to see if he'll really do what he says he will do. Jesus says, there's no need because I know my Father. There's no reason for me to test him because there was total trust, total dependence in him. And that is what God calls us to. So I want to end by asking you this question for you to think about. What are you waiting for God to do before you trust him? 
I feel like some people are, are just on the edge of genuine, real, life-changing faith. But the thing that's holding them back is this. Maybe you have a desire, you're, you're, you're like, you know, God, I really want to believe that that could be true for me, but before I believe it, I need you to do this. If you feel like you're holding back your faith because you're waiting to see if God will answer the test question that you've given to him, what is it that you're waiting on him to do that he hasn't already done? What more can he do to convince you of his love for you? Think about it. He has created you. He has literally invaded our world to come and walk with us, show us a picture of who he is to live in our flesh, to identify fully with us in all things, to live in his full divinity yet full humanity so that he could identify with us and come as the sacrifice, the only the only sufficient sacrifice to take away the sin that separates us from him. And he comes and he does that. And he's done that and he's given his life on the cross. He's that sacrifice and he's risen from the grave. He's conquered death for us. And he's ever present. He lives all of those things that we've been singing about. He is that person already. What else do you want him to do? Let go of your doubts. Stop testing him. Stop looking for one more miraculous sign before you put your faith in him. The cross is all the proof you need. The cross is it. What more can Jesus do that he hasn't already done to prove that he loves you and to prove that he keeps his promises.